Hello, everyone. Alexandre Vieira here, and welcome to the another episode of the Economics of Everything podcast with yours truly and Alejandro Esquivel. Here on Econ of Everything, we believe that economics in its purest form is a study of how people make decisions. Thus, our goal is to make our audience informed decision makers in all parts of their life. We will do this by breaking down the topics we look at with data, research, and practicing theories. We will also be looking at topics agnostically to discourage empirics to employ an economic lens. Yeah, today we have Bridger Pennington, who runs a real estate investment fund called Black Bridge Capital. Bridger, we are so excited that you're here with us. Um, you, it sounds like you have a little bit of, of investment funds coming up in the ranks um, and really excited to kind of get into uh, you know your, your background, your story, and your outlook of where real estate is going. Yeah, well, excited to be on you guys. It's going to be fun. Yeah, with starting a fund at 22 with $49,000 in the fund and getting 64% return on that fund, it's going to be a wealth of knowledge coming from that side of the table. And I'm very excited to get to share that knowledge with all of our listeners and hopefully take a whole bunch of notes with it as well. So starting us off, Bridgerton, uh, how, how did you get in? Uh, how did you get where you are today? And what really pushed you through all your trials and tribulations? Yeah. Um, yeah. Quick, just yeah. background. I mean, by the way, thanks for having me on. It's going to be fun to, to chat with you guys today. I started out like a lot of, I think people, I grew up in a very, I would say a regular house, middle, kind of the middle of the road family. Awesome. My dad was an entrepreneur though. And so I saw him start businesses and close businesses and I got into college and I was, I was like, my hair was lit on fire. I was ready to make some money. I was ambitious. I was young. I said, I, this is my time. And so I got into college. I started six businesses my first two years of college. Um, I was kind of just, I was just trying everything. I tried um, real estate wholesaling. I did Forex trading. I built websites for people. I did Chinese tutoring. I mean, I did the most, anything that I thought could make me money. I, I tried. And finally, my, my dad, and you'll probably hear about him more, greatest mentor in my life. He, he grabs me, he goes, Bridger, you're kind of like a chicken with your head cut off. I, I want you to go meet with one of my business partners. I really think he can help you. And so I said, okay. And I'm, I'm like 20 years old at the time, 21, I think at the time. And I go, okay. I set up this appointment. I start driving to this guy's house. I drive up these nice, beautiful hills. I come through a gated community and I start to roll through these massive mansions. And I pull up this hill to this little cul-de-sac and there is this gorgeous white home on top of the hill, beautiful pool in the backyard, like the whole thing. Right. And I go, I get, I kind of double check my phone. Like, is this, is this actually like my dad's business partner? Like, who is this guy? You know? And I'm like, what the heck? And so I, I get to the door, I knock on the door. I'm a little nervous. I didn't know if a Butler was going to come and, you know, kick me off the property or something. <laughs> so I knock, I'm a little nervous. My, my thing to my surprise, my dad's business partner answered the door. He goes, Bridger, come on in. We come in, we sit down on his big white couches in his, in his front room. And we start to talk. And we start chatting about life and everything. And I finally ask him, how did you get all of this? And I kind of point at everything, right? Like, how did you do this? And he laughed. He goes, well, Bridger, it's, it's funny. Not a lot of people ask me that question. And I was like, oh, shoot. Like, are you not, I don't, I don't know. Are you not supposed to ask rich people that question? I, that was, I was like, that's the one burning question I had was how did you, and he goes, no, no, it's fine. Right. Goes, Let me tell you. And he goes, I was just like you in my twenties. I had started a number of businesses. I had done well. I had made a lot of money, but then I'd figured out the secrets of the wealthy. He goes, when I was about in my mid thirties, I finally figured out that 
people that were making huge amounts of wealth, generational wealth, were doing a number of things. And one of the things most of these wealthy families were doing was they were working in funds and they would work in private equity, hedge funds, real estate funds, or they would run their own family office back home. And a lot of these families would have, they would, you know, even cheat to get their kids into the best schools, right? We've seen that in the news, right? Cheat to get their kids into Harvard or Yale or whatever. They hope that their kid will go do investment banking, consulting, um, go work their way up through private equity hedge funds and, and eventually run a fund or come back home and run the family office. And he goes, I figured that out about a decade ago. And I said, I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to figure out what this world is of private equity, hedge funds, venture capital funds, and I'm going to start my own fund. And he goes about eight uh, at the time is about six years earlier, seven years earlier, he goes me and your dad launched a real estate fund and we currently manage $8 billion of real estate. That's billion with a B. It was $8 billion wow. of real estate and wow. multifamily real estate. To, to put that into perspective, probably everyone here has heard of Grant Cardone. Mm-hmm. Cardone Capital, yeah. they manage about $1.1 billion at today, right now. Wow. At the time, they are seven times bigger than Grant Cardone. Now they're over, I think they're over $20 billion they manage. It's crazy, right? In the same space, what they're doing. And and I was, I was very intrigued. He, he started to teach me about you know, hedge funds, private, what this was, this whole world of funds. And I finally, I said, um, I, uh, and you guys can interrupt me if you'd like as well and ask questions, whatever. But I finally, uh, I, I go, Hey, can you be my mentor? I've always heard you got to find a mentor. That's the best way to, you know, level up in life. And I said, Hey, can you be my mentor? And he goes, Bridger, go talk to your dad. Your dad knows about this way more than I do. And I go, no, no, hold on. My dad, we live in a regular house. He drives a crappy car. Like I want to learn from you. Like can you like be my mentor. And he goes, Bridger, he goes, me and your dad make about the same amount of money. Wow. And my, my chin dropped to the floor. I was like, huh? And I left his house. I drove straight to my dad's house. I was like, dad, what the heck? (laughs) Why? why, Like you're making money. And like, why haven't we gone on any trips or like, why haven't I been able to order a soda at Chipotle for the past five years? (laughs) Too expensive, You know, like, like what's going on? And and anyways, he laughs. He goes, uh, well, Bridger, he goes, you know, I like to save and invest my money and my business partner likes to spend his money and we just live different lives. But yeah, we, we run this real estate fund. And long story short, we he sits down and starts to teach me over the next couple months about funds, how funds work, how they're structured, how to raise capital, how to file with the SEC, the whole interworkings of investment funds. And um, I was very intrigued. I set a goal that I wanted to launch my own fund. And um, and what happened was sooner than I, I expected about eight months later, I was at this, this job, I was working for this company and they, I, they had an opportunity to, well, I found the opportunity. They didn't make the opportunity. I found an opportunity that we could lend money to some of their clients. Some of the people that came through needed financing and lending on their businesses that they were doing. And I said, Hey, what if I started to fund and I lent money to these people? And so I talked to the owners of the business. They liked it. I went and talked to my dad. He loved it. And over the next few weeks, we started to structure and put together this fund. And my dad helped me think through it. We put together all the stuff and everything and got legal docs kind of put together. And, and, um, I was really excited. I was like, I'm going to launch a fund. I'm going to raise money. We're going to do these loans. It's going to be amazing. I'm 22 years old. This is going to be awesome. And then I was like, shoot, I've got to raise some money. And I, for whatever reason, I overlooked that piece of it. (laughs) The one thing you need for a fund is money. And, uh, and for people that don't know, when I say fund, all I mean is literally all a fund is, is just a pool of money. 
that right. a fund manager like me or you can just draw from that pool of money and go make investments. So a private equity fund is essentially a, a pool of money that fund managers draw from that pool and they go buy and sell private companies. They can go buy and sell businesses. A hedge fund has the same pool of money. They draw from that pool and they can go trade, buy and sell public securities. A real estate fund has that pool of money. They just buy, like they said, real estate, right? Venture capital, same pool of money. It's the same structure. They just grab that pool and they can invest into small startup stage companies. So that's all. What I, when I say fund, that's all I mean. It's just a pool of money. And so my, my fund was going to do debt. I was going to do loans. And so I was really excited. I, I was like, shoot, how am I going to raise money? Kind of back to the story. And I was like, well, I got it. My dad is rich, apparently, doesn't spend <laughs> his money. He likes to invest. I'm his son. He's told me he loves this idea. Like he'll be perfect, right? And so I, I said, it. I was like, I'm going to go ask my dad for money. And so it was a late Sunday night. I remember I walked into his office. We sat down. I said, dad, you know, I thank you so much for helping me with this fund. He said, yeah, it's been awesome. I said, dad, in my best pitch voice possible, I said, dad, how would you like to be our first investor into our fund? And my dad kind of laughs and he goes, Bridger, um, he goes, I have the money to invest. But if I invest in your fund, it would ruin the experience of you going out and raising money on your own. Because this is a crutch that you will never be able to recover from. Your first investor is the hardest investor to find. And if I'm that first investor of you, you he goes, you literally will never recover from this. And he said, no. And it was a big tough love moment between me and my dad. And he kicked me out and he said, you got to go figure this out on your own. And... Um, like you mentioned in the beginning, I, I took him up on the challenge and I said, I'm going to prove it to him. And I went and hit the streets. I talked to everybody I could possibly find. And I raised a whopping $49,000 for my first fund. It was teeny in the fund world. And you guys know this is absolutely just small. It's probably the smallest fund you could possibly start. <laughs> but it was enough to get started. I had six investors and I was like, hey, this is enough. We were doing these small loans. They were like three to five grand a loan. They were really small. And we launched it. And like you mentioned, our first investors, we got them a 64% return. Um, and this small little micro fund, it was awesome. I got them their money back and we were all excited. I said, Hey, we're going to, we launched fund two. And so we launched our second fund since and fund two, we raised a lot more money since then we've deployed millions of dollars out of that fund done very well. Right now we're launching a third fund, actually transitioning to real estate. And we've, we've grown like crazy since then it's been awesome. And so, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into this game of funds and um, you know, I'm still in the game. I'm still working it and raising capital and moving and, and it's, it's pretty fun to be a part of. Yeah. Bridget, that's, that's really an incredible story that you have there. And it's almost like the exact opposite of the Robert Kiyosaki, rich dad, poor dad story where your dad was actually the one that, you know, you, you look for mentorship. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's pretty awesome that you were able to uh, look for, look for a mentor and write, uh, end up right back where you started, um, which is which is awesome. Um, so you mentioned you have started a couple of funds now and, you know, primarily in real estate, looking to invest in uh, debt, looking to invest in, uh, you know, before we had gotten onto the actual podcast, you had mentioned in big box stores. So I, I guess one thing that I'd be interested to hear about is kind of like, how do you look for a deal? and actually think about it in, in structuring it for a investable security or an investable deployment of your client's capital. So the question is, how do I actually go out and find a deal? And how do I, how do we find those? Right? Sure. 
Yes. Yes. So the, uh, the first thing, this is actually something my dad taught me and he, cause you know, some, some people, and we actually, I have a podcast and we kind of talk about this and I have a lot of people that come to me, Bridger, I want to start a fund. I want to get into this. And they, they always have the same question, but, but where, right? That's the, the thesis, right? What is your investment thesis going to be? And so the, the first thing that the, my dad taught me, and he said, Bridger, start telling everybody that you have a, a fund or you have money and you're looking to invest. Go start telling everybody you have it. And I was like, but I don't have a fund yet. He goes, that's okay, but you have access to capital, right? If, if you found a good enough deal today, like it was a slam dunk, amazing property you're going to flip. He goes, you could probably over the next six months find the money and raise the capital, right? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And he goes, okay, so then you've got kind of access to capital and you're looking for deals. So he goes, number one, start telling everybody you know that you are in the the game of looking for and whatever you know asset class you're looking for maybe it's real estate maybe it's uh, a crypto fund or something like that start telling everybody you have capital and he goes you'll be surprised how many deals come your way and so I started to tell people hey I'm you know hey I'm, I'm starting a fund or I'm looking to start a fund I'm looking for deals in this asset class or this space um, and I just I went I'm not pitching people I'm not trying to like be overbearing or anything I just you know, in natural conversation, people always ask you, what do you do for work? And I said, oh, well, I, you know, I'm running, I'm starting a fund right now. We're looking to buy um, big box stores and, and we're going to flip them and renovate them and stuff. And they go, oh, great. And you'd be surprised just word of mouth, how, how much things get around. Another great way to go is what I started to do is go to real estate clubs. Um, there are in every city in the world, there is a real estate club that meets once a month. I can guarantee you. I live in Salt Lake City, Utah. If I was able to start a fund of my dad in Salt Lake City, Utah, of all places, you can start a fund wherever you are. Okay. And, but I started to go to these real estate meetup groups and some of them are good and some of them are kind of bad, but I would start to say, Hey, at the time, Hey, I've got a fund. I'm looking to lend. I'm looking to, you know, deploy capital. And, um, I started to get people's emails and we'd start to share deals and things like that. And it was a really easy way to start shopping the network and shopping what was going on. And so I was, I mean, for the last, for, for instance, though, right. I'll just give you a real life example. So the last three years I've ran my second fund. It's a debt fund. We do loans to these small businesses. They're not backed by real estate, not at all, but the last, I don't know, nine, 10 months, I have been shopping other investment opportunities. And I, I tell people, Hey, I'm running a fund right now. I'm looking to transition to another space. What do you got? And I get probably three to five times a week. I get people on zoom or on a phone call or whatever that are pitching me their fund idea or what they're going to do or how I can help them out. Or, and it's, it's really cool actually word of mouth, how fast, um, how fast your name can spread. So that would be, I don't know if that's the best answer you're looking for, but that's how it's worked for me. And, um, and after, you know, dating around for eight months or 10 months, right. I, finally, I finally found a partner and a thesis that I really love and believe in and that we're going after. And like you mentioned, big box stores, we're going to renovate and, and, um, put, you know, rehab a lot of these big box stores is our plan. Awesome. That's uh, it's definitely a cool approach that you've taken. And it sounds like you're an energetic, you know, go and find yourself a deal type of uh, type of fund manager. So that's definitely somebody that I'd look for in, in ways that, uh, you know, if I were to ever put my own investable capital into a fund, um, that characteristics that I'd look for. So. Well, and that's, I think I like just to add on to what you just said there, like I'm young, right? I don't, I don't have the 25 years of wall street. I don't have the Harvard degree to hang on or just lean on and just say, Oh yeah, I've got a Harvard degree. I'm obviously smart. I have to like hustle. I've got to get out there and be energetic and meet people and, you know, and, and kind of work, um, those things. And it's really, I was actually, um, 
was listening to an interesting uh, podcast from somebody else. They were talking about um, why the wealthy keep getting wealthier and why do certain individuals get more and more opportunities given to them. And, you know, they, there's a lot of reasons. Obviously, wealthy people can invest and things like that. But he goes, and he goes take away investing. Take, let's just look at opportunity. And he goes, what happens is if you have, you know, Alejandro is, is, you know, in this area or this space and he is a great guy. I like working with him. Well, I'm going to refer him to somebody else and he made me money over here. And so I'm going to take him the next deal and the next deal. And, oh, if you've been successful in the past, there's a likelihood you might be successful in the future. And so what happens is people keep bringing you more and more deals and opportunities um, as you become more and more successful. And so, um, never underestimate the value of your reputation. I had somebody tell me that a number of years ago and it, it, he goes, never, never underestimate that value. I mean, if do not, he goes, do not burn people. Do not be a jerk on the phone or whatever. And just think, Oh, I'll never talk to this person again. He goes, you'll be surprised how small the world is and how mm-hmm. many people talk to each other before doing business with you. And I've had actually, I, I'm actually, I'm selling a business right now. One of my businesses I'm selling, um, the guy buying it, he called four people that I didn't even know that he knew that know me and asked if I was a credible person, if I was honest, if I had integrity before he would uh, move forward with the deal. And they all checked out and I was like, wow, okay, thank goodness I never burned one of those guys from five years ago that he right. knows. Um, never underestimate the value of reputation if the world's kind of small. Definitely, that's. I think that transpires across every industry, every you know profession. Um, and I think that's great advice to, to heed. Um, so you've mentioned your real estate investment funds now a couple of times. You mentioned uh, you're selling a business that's uh, taken a little bit of, uh, um, you know, a little bit of due diligence from the in- sale. Um, but I'm just curious, like what and I know you, your your dad had started a real estate investment fund. You had kind of mentioned that, but what propelled you to continue down that path in real estate uh, originally? Were you what, what were you attracted to um, when you first started your real estate investment fund? So yeah, to be clear, the first two funds I launched were not in real estate. Those were debt funds. We were doing loans to small businesses and entrepreneurs. Not no real estate was involved in those. Our the third fund I'm setting up now is my is my first real estate fund, um, and we're doing the big box stores and flipping those. Um, we've raised a considerable amount of money so far for it. It's kind of fun, and that's what we're getting into. So just to be clear, that's kind of where we're at. But um, yeah, the question was, what drew me to it? Right? What drew me to this space. Um, it really was that back to that original meeting I had with my dad's business partner, him walking me through how much money, uh, fund managers make. Uh, if you meet, um, anybody that works in hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, they're usually very, very wealthy people. If you look on the Forbes 100 list, it's riddled with fund managers and it's because the vehicle of a fund is so amazing. The, the fact that if you can run a fund, first off, funds are, are scalable. So you can scale funds as pretty, and depends on the industry, but as big as you want to. Um, and you're taking a slice of that entire fund. The, the business model is so great. There's so much margin and um, fund managers actually get taxed at a lower tax bracket. Um, if they get paid in carried interest, it's awesome. That's why guys like Mitt Romney and Donald Trump don't want to share their tax returns because they pay really little tax 
because they're fund managers. Fund managers get uh, huge tax breaks that, and the IRS does that on purpose. They want to incentivize people to start funds. And so I was looking at, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of my story, I, I had, um, I started six businesses in my first two years of college. One of those businesses was a Chinese tutoring business. And I speak Mandarin Chinese. I, I served a, an LDS mission for my church. I went to Taiwan for two years and I learned Mandarin. It's awesome. I loved it. And so I was like, I came home and I was like, hey, I'm going to tutor people on Chinese. I had nine tutors. Um, I had this business I was running. You know, it was, it was good. It was growing. Each lesson, I was making like $6 a lesson that my other teacher would teach. Six bucks. Like that's it. Like the margins were so thin, at least the way I had set it up. There's probably a better way to set it up. But the way I was doing it, I was like, this sucks. Like the margin of error is so small. Same with like restaurants, right? If, you know, the, even the best restaurant in your city, you know, they're, they're still, the margins are so thin, right? And the, the, um, the amount of scale is really hard in certain in industries. So mm -hmm. I decided, hey, if I'm going to spend the next 25 years getting good at something, I could become a chef and become the best chef ever and try to build a, you know, a great restaurant, or I could become a concrete layer and try to become the best concrete layer in my city, but I'm going to be capped at some level. I might as well choose a vehicle of a business that I can scale to the moon and the payoff really good. I love Steven Schwartzman's book, um, whatever it takes. He's the founder of Blackstone. And he says in that book, he says, it takes just as much energy to start a small business as it does to start a big business. So why not just start a big business? It's because the reward and payoff is so much greater. You're going to have the same amount of headache, the same amount of problems, but the reward is so much bigger. And so I said, Hey, this is a great vehicle. I'm going to go after it. And I'm going to, I'm going to really go on. Even if I'm, even if I'm average, I still will make money than, a, you know, somebody else better than me in a different vehicle of a business. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I love your success stories. It really shows that you having the right mentors and having the right direction and support has really pushed you forward. But I always feel like people learn a lot from their mistakes as well. So what is one of your biggest failures or mistakes that you've experienced over your, uh, your career? And what are some like lessons that you learned from it? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I love this question on other shows. Um, one of I'll, a few come to mind, I'll just rattle some off. Um, my first fund, um, I had some partners in that fund and, uh, they were passive partners. I was running. It wasn't, it wasn't truly a fund. It was a syndication is how we set it up. I call it, I just use the word fund for kind of every type of money raising thing, but it was a, it was a syndication. So we had syndicated money together. Um, one of the other owners of the business had access to the bank accounts. And so I was the one running the day to day. We're doing these loans, lending all this great stuff. This is my, you know, $50,000 loan, you know, pool. This is at this time. Right. And, uh, I, I wake up one day, I go on the bank accounts and we're missing like $11,000. And wow. I'm like, huh, you know, and I'm like, that's a lot. That's a, and I, I look back and I, I'm trying to run the numbers. Like maybe I, maybe it's in some loans. Maybe I send it out. Cause we do a lot of wires, right? We have a lot of transactions of loans coming in and out. These are fast turn. These loans last like 14 days to maybe, maybe four weeks, right? They're very fast. So we have a lot of transactions. So I'm looking through all the things and I look and I see this transaction to this random chase account that I don't know. And none of it came out. It wasn't recorded. And I, I go back anyways. Um, you can kind of see where I go on this. I had a business partner who took $11,000 out of the account, um, to pay employees in another company. He, cause he had another company and I, he had to make payroll. 
And I call him up and this dude is twice my age. He's ran businesses for 25 years. And I go, dude, I see 11 grand went to your account. What's, what's going on? He goes, oh, um, yeah, let me get back to you. I'm going to try to, he doesn't answer my questions. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm like, this 11 grand went to, is this your account? And he goes, well, yeah, that's my account. I'm like, why, why is 11 grand going to your account? Like what's going on? And, um, anyways, I, I finally get it out of him. He's like, well, we had to make payroll and we had to pay all this kind of stuff. And, and I go, and he goes, well, I know that's my, cause he put some money in as an investor too. Cause I was just pulling, I was just pulling some of my money out and I go, it doesn't work that way. You can't just pull your money in and out of a, of a syndication. And I go, um, he goes, yeah, I can. I mean, come on, like, come on, Bridger. Like you understand, like I'll get the money back to you in a couple of weeks. I go, no, I don't understand. There's a word for this. It's called fraud. And, um, and I go, I need that $11,000 back in my account in, in two weeks or whatever. I gave him a time frame, or like, this is going to get serious. And, um, and anyways, he, uh, we, we kind of worked with him, whatever. And he was, anyways, their other business was kind of going downhill, obviously, because he needed cat. He was trying to make payroll and all this stuff. And, and finally we worked it out where we could get the money out and things like that. And the, um, we had, the partners were fighting with each other. I was threatening to sue them. Right. I was like, Hey, I, you know, my, my brother's a securities attorney. And I was like, Hey, we can, I can sue you right now with, with, you know, nothing if, you know, and it's, it's 11 grand. It's not that, you know, it's not like, thankfully it wasn't multi-million dollars, but 11 grand was a lot to me at the time. And so anyways, we finally got, got everything figured out. And I, that's, um, we, we got our money out. I paid back the, like I said, the 64% return, we all worked out. We got the money in and we Paul paid it out. And, but I said for my, I, we, we closed that one down. I said, I'm gonna set up a real fund this time. And I'm not having, this guy obviously is not a partner. No one's a partner. And I said, I'm the, I'm the only partner in this. And you guys can invest if you like as a limited partner, but we're going to go from there. And I took um, full control over that, um, that, and it's been great. That, that was about four and a half years ago. We've done that and it was awesome. It's gone well. Um, but to learn from that, you know, mistake people, I I've heard this from other people and I didn't take it seriously until it happens to you. But when you are a business partner with somebody, you really are like in a marriage, like you are married to that person and, um, you really need to, to date your business partners before you go into business with them. You really need to, um, know that they're an honest person they're going to have access to bank accounts. They're going to have access to, they can go open up lines of credit at other places, right? Hope maybe without you even knowing, right? Make sure you have good, good checks and balances. Make sure you trust them. Um, and uh, if you do, I have a, I have a business partner. One of my businesses, we're, we're best friends. He's a great business partner. We're 50, 50, and it's just awesome. And it goes really well. And, and, uh, so you see the fruits of a, a good partnership. It's, you know, one plus one equals three and then bad partnerships. It can be the complete opposite, you know? So, that was, I think, a good lesson learned uh, from there of, you know, business partners stealing money. Definitely. I appreciate it. And just so uh, our view, our listeners know, a uh, difference from my understanding between a syndication and a fund. Syndication are shorter term, one or two deals. It'd be like me, me buying a house, flipping it and selling it, and then the whole deal is done. Whereas a fund is longer term, you write up the paperwork once and then you can just keep pulling and re- refunding the fund and using it over and over again. Uh, exactly, yeah. Bridger, a question I had for you is, let's say we have like $100,000 in a fund and I only use $50,000 of it. How does that work in like the payoffs in the whole situation? Because you're not using 100% of the funds. And are you kind of incentivized to use 100, uh, the 100000 even if you don't have the best deal to spend on the full $100,000? Great question. Yeah. So let's just use that example, $100,000 um, committed. What you'll do is when you have a fund, 
you'll, you have investors and you send them subscription agreements, they sign and they commit capital to the fund. So let's say you had uh, 10 investors that each committed $10,000 to your fund, totaling a hundred or $100,000. Um, so you now can call down money if you like. So if you find a deal that's $50,000, you would call down 50% of the capital. You'd say issue a capital call is what it's called. And those investors would, you know, okay, each one would put in $5,000 or pro rata how much they had committed. And um, that's 50 grand. Now you go do that deal. You're at the, at the same time, you're probably looking for other deals, right? You're going to be looking for multiple deals over time. Um, you do not, number one, you don't have to call the capital. If there's not a good deal, obviously you don't want to deploy capital into a, a bad deal. So you, you don't have to call the capital, but investors, they, at the time they, they are holding the, you know, the remainder $5,000 in all their accounts. They haven't invested, but they have to keep that liquid. They've got to keep that amount liquid for you to call because usually you'll say, Hey, you have 14 days to complete this capital call. So they've got to keep that money liquid and investors, um, they, you know, they can wait for a little bit, but they don't want to wait for a year or 18 months or something like that. So tip, there's two things that happen. Um, number one is you'll cap call the capital, right? And you'll just deploy it into more deals. If you can't call the capital, you can send them a letter that releases them of their capital calls. So I'm actually a limited partner in one fund. And I just got a letter that said, Hey, we have finished uh, acquiring properties now as a real estate fund, you are now released from the room. I had like, I was like $26,000 remaining on my capital call that I had to keep kind of like what he said, you're released now from that commitment. And you know, you can use that money however you like. Is making, does that make kind of, is that kind of making sense? Yeah. yeah. You, can, you can release them from capital commitments. Now you're asking about how to do um, distrib, you know, how do you calculate your IRRs and distributions? Typically now you'll, your fund, you'll have this in your documents. Um, how you want to, you, the great thing about funds is you get to write the documents. You get to write all the rules of what you want to do. Most funds will say they count the IRR stuff just on capital called. So you would only be writing your ROIs and your APYs, all the metrics you do only on the $50,000, the moment it hit your bank account. Okay. The moment the money came at risk. Now the money is, it's not in their pockets anymore. It's now been called and it's at risk in your bank account and you're buying a property or you're investing in crypto or whatever you're doing. Um, only at that moment, do you start the count, you know, counter of, okay, money's at risk. We're going to start calculating wins and losses, things like that. Is that kind of making sense? Oh, yep. okay. So that, that, that really rounds it out. And so just so the listeners have a good idea, these documents that you're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, is the LPA and the PPM or Limited yep. Partners Association and the Private Placement Memorandum. So those two documents really outline all of the rules of the uh, rules of the trade, rules of the engagement, and how everything gets dealt with. Correct? Yes. Yeah. So it's it's a LPA's Limited Partnership Agreement. Okay. Um, but yeah, they they we call it the Bible. So it is it is truly they're thick documents. You just showed me you had some papers. They're about a hundred pages <laughs> each. Very thick, lengthy documents that walk through every rule and 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 when I say rule, you get to set the rules. So you get to write the rules for your fund. So you can say, hey, our fund, we only take a minimum commitment is two million dollars. So to get into our fund, you have to have at least two million dollars to commit. Okay, that's a lot of funds will say something like that. You'll write that down in your LPA and PPM um, in there. And sometimes you'll have an, you know, except the general partner, the fund managers, they can make exceptions, stuff like that. And you usually yeah. have exceptions to rules, but, and then you'll say, hey, this fund is gonna, 
uh, invest only into cryptocurrency assets. Okay. And you'll write that in there. If you have a crypto fund set up and you get the best real estate deal you've ever seen in your life. Okay. And you've got a hundred million dollar crypto fund and you, you know, Oh my gosh, we have this great real estate project. It looks amazing. You cannot do it with the funds dollars because your LP and PPM have said you set the rules of, Hey, we are only going to invest in a cryptocurrency. We aren't, even if we get a great real estate deal, we can't go out of our, our thesis of our, our charter inside of our fund. Is that kind of making sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And, and thinking about uh, the infamous movie, movie uh, The Big Short, where mm-hmm. Michael Burry was kind of going outside of the uh, investment thesis a little bit by shorting, uh, you know, the the mortgage-backed securities. Um, I, I guess putting that into that scope uh, makes a little bit more sense now why investors felt like they had the justifications to try and pull their funds. Isn't that the best scene ever? I love that. And that's, that is why funds are the most beautiful thing in the world. So we, you asked earlier about syndications versus funds. A syndication, depending on how, there's a lot of ways to set them up, but a lot of times you are partners with, so let's say you had like a $100 million apartment complex you wanted to buy. You know, hey, we're going to put in $10 million. We're going to find this other partner. We all put in, you know, $8 million, $10 million, $20 million. We all put money together into an LLC and we go buy the property. On paper, you guys are going to have an operating agreement. And you're all essentially equity owners, business partners on that $100 million project, uh, which you know is, is fine. It's, a, it's an easier way to set it up. Um, it's usually faster to set up, lower cost. However, those other business partners have a say in what goes on. Inside of a fund, you have a general partner and a limited partnership. The general partner is the fund managers. The limited partnership is the fund. And then you have limited partners or investors that put money into the limited partnership. And they truly are limited. They're limited in their liability and they're limited in their control. And so that's the reason eight, eight guys on Wall Street can manage you know, a $10 billion fund and their biggest investor can come to them and say, hey, um, you know, I've got some tax problems. Can you guys liquidate some of the fund and get me some money out for my tax stuff, you know? And uh, you go, hey, uh, thanks for the advice, but no. You know, these, these properties are not ready. They're not seasoned. I am doing what's best for the fund. I don't do what's best for individual investors. And I'm sorry you're in that place. And usually your LP and PPM will say, yeah, you can pull money out now, but you're going to have like a 50% penalty. You're going to lose half your money if you pull it out now, if you want it early because these properties aren't ready to sell yet, or this company is going to IPO in a little bit. We can't sell our shares now. We've got to wait for it to IPO. And so it puts the entire fund at risk. So that's why funds are so beautiful. So Michael Burry, right in that scene, you know, the investors are coming into his office. They're yelling at him. They're like, you got to sell, you got to get out. And he just goes, sorry, I'm, I'm the fund manager. I am the general partner. Thanks for your advice, but no. Right, and uh, that's the most beautiful thing about funds is the control. Now, if you did if you did something illegal or something really unethical, that's a different story, right? Investors can get their money out, but if if you're within your LP and PPM and you're following what you said you were going to do, but the market's just tanking or you're taking a huge short, right? Um, tough, right? Tough. Sorry, yeah. you trusted me with your money, and I'm going to do what's best for the fund and whether it goes up or down. That's so anyways, I love that scene for Michael Burry because it, it proves that point to a T. Definitely. Uh, Bridger, I, I think we have time for one more question here. 
Uh, I have a little bit more time too. I told you guys top hour. I actually, I, I can go a little bit longer. So if you guys want to, I know we started a little bit late. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, well then I have another question for you here. <laughs> yeah. You alluded to cryptocurrencies now a couple times throughout this podcast. Um, so framing this, if you were to restart, uh, or even, I mean, start a new fund outside of the three funds that you have now um, with that uh, and then big box stores, rehab, rehabilitation, and you were to start with a different asset class, what would you start with and, and why? Um, man, it's a good question. Um, I don't know if I can give it I, I an accurate answer on that. There's a lot of different schools of thought. You know, I'm starting a new fund right now out of my older asset classes on big box for them. Seeing a, I see a big opportunity there of what we're doing. Um, I've got a number of, we, we have kind of a, a group that we have online and stuff. And so I get to see a lot of different funds. We have a number of people launching crypto funds, a number of people launching the craziest funds you've ever heard of, right? Almond farm funds are doing solar farms. They're doing just all sorts of really cool things. Um, to be honest, I would bet less on the, the I don't know, the industry or the, or the idea as much as I would bet on the jockey on the horse of who I'm partnering with. I typically, um, in all my funds, actually, I'm very good at structuring funds, find and raising capital. I'm not that great of an investor. Like I, I'm an average investor. So I go find really good investors to partner with. And so if I could find a, a partner that was finding, you know, creating alpha, um, you know, time and time again, you know, relatively low risk with a high return. Um, I'd be there all day. But to answer your question more specifically, right? What would I? What am I interested in, or what am I, I looking at? I've mentioned crypto a couple of times. I I hold you know quite a bit of cryptocurrency myself, just personally. Um, mm -hmm. I believe I think it's a it's a good hedge against other things. That's kind of fun to invest in, just as my play kind of gamble money, I guess. Um, right. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I uh, I was actually on a call this morning with. Um, with a, a well, you know, well-renowned and really, you know, um, amazing real estate fund manager. And he just says, guys, real estate is, is boring, but it's, it's the long-term play. He goes, you're going to be running a boring asset class, like real estate. Let's, let's call it B class apartments, real estate. Right. And your friends are going to be making money in tech, in crypto, in options and stuff. But he, he's like, I know I have staying power. I know if we have a, a recession, people, B class apartments, A people that live in A A apartments, A plus apartments, they move out and they move to B class. And B people in B class apartments move to C class apartments. He goes throughout recessions, B class apartments typically always still do well. And he goes, I know it's boring. It's a boring, you know, eight to maybe sixteen percent return a year, but it's consistent and it's long term. And I can stay in the game for a very very long time. And so I. Uh, you know, I, I, everyone probably has, you know, I have my really safe money and then I have kind of my gambling money. If I was doing a fund to really believe in it, I like, I like the boring, consistent, long-term returns for me. Uh, B-class apartments is a really great way to go. Um, there and other, you know, traditional asset class, maybe an index, you know, safer index type of fund portfolio. I'm more in that, that, cause I have, you know, I have 30, 50 years to work with, right. I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid twenties. So I, you know, I'm playing for the long-term. Right. Definitely. So uh, I have, I'm curious with all of this real, all these mentoring and all this information that you've had recently, what are one or two books that you would recommend to Alejandro and I, or even to our viewers that would really either push us into the fund management space or into an industry that you're currently interested in? 
Um, yeah, I, yeah. And specifically funds. I love reading. I, I a ton of books come to mind. Um, if you're kind of just, you know, interested in getting in investing, right. Kind of just like, Hey, I want to start investing. You know, don't know where to start money master the game by Tony Robbins is a great book for just people looking to like figure out investing. I'm guessing people listening to this podcast probably are already there. They're like, Hey, I know how to invest. I know what, what's out there. I want to go to the next level. Um, some great books. One of my favorite books is reminiscences of a stock operator. It was written in like, I think it's, it was written in 1930s, 35. And, um, this has been one of the longest, um, lasting finance books, I think on the planet. <laughs> and, uh, um, it's, it's reminiscences of a stock operator. They, it's, it's a story of this, of this kid who he starts getting interested in stocks and he goes to these bucket shops where they have the ticket price. And the, the book is it's lasted for so long because he goes through example after example of insider trading and collusions and all sorts of stuff that happened before the SEC was created. He's talking, he, he writes the book in the perspective of like the 1920s when, you know, you had all the, all this crazy stuff happening in the markets. The crazy thing is it's all still happens today. So all the same stuff he talks about all happens today. There's a great example in the book. He, um, he, he's like a young kid. He, he gets this tip, um, on this stock and there's this huge other guy in Washington. It's gonna, he is, um, selling, like, you know, a million shares of whatever company. And so he gets this tip that he's going to do this, you know, short tomorrow morning. And so he runs to this other guy that he's paid to help give tips for. He runs in and he goes, Hey, you should sell your shares in this. This guy's, you know, he's, they're all selling the market off tomorrow. You know, the market's going to open in like an hour or whatever it is. And he turns to his other guy and he goes, um, he goes, Hey, I would like you to buy 10,000 shares of, you know, XYZ stock. And he goes, no, I just told you to sell. Like, I'm, I'm telling you to sell and get out. And um, he goes, no, buy. He goes, buy 10,000 shares. He's like, what's going on? And um, and it might have been, I might be getting this example. It might, might, have, been, might have been reversed. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm saying it wrong. But um, he goes and he, he buys 10,000 shares. And um, the shares, the transaction goes through instantly. And he goes, for that transaction to go through that fast, there must be someone selling a million shares, like, like, like the tip. So he said, I did that to validate right. your tip. And then he goes and he sells like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like a hundred thousand shares or something. It makes a ton of money on the trade. Anyways. Um, I don't know if I, I gave the example, right. If you guys followed that at all, I was trying to remember off the top of my head, but, um, <laughs> it's a cool book. He goes yeah. through all these great things of all, uh, insider trading, all this fun stuff. So reminiscence of a stock operator. Um, most books on funds I've read, I've read pretty much every book I can get on, on funds. Most of them do not talk about how to structure a fund, how to put one together, how to start a fund. Most of them are very high level, um, talking through kind of the really high level, sexy stuff of funds. Um, it's actually really frustrating. If you're trying to start a fund, there's not a lot of good books out there. And that's why, you know, we've created content online and done our stuff to, to help that gap. But high, another high level book, Stephen Schwartzman's Whatever It Takes, really cool story of how he launched Black. So not very technical, but a cool story. Um, More Money Than God talks about uh, hedge fund managers and how really cool stories of George Soros and Bill Ackman and just all these great stories from the last 50 years of hedge funds. And anyways, those are a few that come to mind that are just fun fun reads to get really technical. There aren't, I mean, there really are not a lot of great books to get in the weeds of how to set up and structure a fund. Um, and that's why, you know, we've started to create some content on it. So 
Definitely. I, I feel like those types of books definitely give a good why, um, but definitely a, a what or a how is, is something that you definitely offer and, and, and I think is going to continue to be demanded from this marketplace uh, as people start to think about how to deploy their investable capital um, outside of, uh, you know, op option calls on, on GameStop. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Before we close off, if you could just tell us a little bit about the, uh, this information that you are offering, uh, you know, with it being so difficult to find a book on starting a funds, if some of our listeners were interested in starting their own fund in their own uh, industry, uh, could you tell us a little bit about some of what you're offering? Yeah. So we, a, a couple years ago, so I started, I had started my funds. My dad obviously runs his funds, you know, DECA billion dollar funds. My brother is a securities attorney. Um, you know, he sets up funds. That's what he does. He does securities law and all that kind of stuff. And so we've had a lot of people reach out to our family asking, how did you guys set up funds? How'd you start? Because none of us went to Harvard. None of us did the Ivy League route. None of us worked on Wall Street. We're just regular entrepreneurs that have figured out this really great space of funds. And so we decided about know, about a year and a half ago to start putting out content online about funds. And so we started a show called Investment Fund Secrets um, is the name of it. And we used to have a podcast and it just took off. We had a lot of people reach out to us. And so we started to make YouTube videos and online. And we eventually we, we have programs and coaching now that we do because just we, we've had so many people reach out. We said we might as well put this into a course and, and kind of make it a little more easier on us to teach. So we we have a number of you know courses and programs and stuff um, that we talk about and, and teach and help people launch funds. It's pretty cool, actually. We had we've had a number of groups come through our our programs and launch very successful funds. One group they started last March, right at the beginning of the pandemic. So about a year ago, um, recording this episode, they uh, they just hit five hundred million dollars under management um, uh -huh. a year. It's just crazy. We have another another group. They've raised twelve million. Another group that's raised like fifteen million. Another group that's raised eight eighteen million. All in the last year, um, just working with us. And so it's been pretty cool to, to help people and launch their funds. So we I do some of that. Some on you know we do online marketing and we have you know uh, different courses and programs and coaching and stuff and then you know stuff like that. But yeah, we we try to just our goal is to pull back the curtain on this space on the fund world. It's just this secret. I don't know what it is. This secret space that no one else talks about. They don't want to teach it. They don't, I don't get why. So we're like, Hey, we'll, we'll kind of expose. It's not as crazy as you think starting a, a private equity fund is not as crazy as you think. Yeah. There's some things to learn, but it's, it's not that crazy. And so that's what we teach and, and help people do. Definitely. Bridger, it's been so awesome to have you on the show and talk with you about the inner workings of investment funds and kind of how you got started um, it, it's truly a, uh, a a great American story that I think um, you, you you have. So um, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and talking with us at the uh, at the economics of everything. Well, it's been you guys are awesome. It's fun that you guys are great, great interviewers. And it's been fun to hang out with you guys. So let me know if you have anything else in the future you want, want help with. Of course, definitely. will do. I will be staying in contact. And then uh, thank all of you, Econ of Everything listeners, for joining us on this episode of the Economics of Everything. We look forward to filling the world with more informed decision makers like you. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Econ of Everything, no G, and the Economics of Everything on LinkedIn and Facebook with a G. And also, just a little throw out, out there, we did launch a website called econofeverything.com. We have Invest With Us options. We have items that we're selling, and we're really looking up to open that up. 
feel free to email us at the econ of everything at gmail.com. And if you could leave us a like, comment, review, let us know what you think. And we would be happy to put that into our next episode. Yeah. Thank you again, Bridger. Thank the you. Econom- the economics of everything. Our interest is in your future value.